I'm excited about this, this sermon because it connects a lot of different pieces together throughout the Scripture. So if you pay attention, I think this would be valuable to you as you try to see how the Lord puts His story together for us. So we are in the second, now the second servant song of Isaiah. Uh, and before I read it to you, let me just remind you that each of these prophetic poems uh, presents this mysterious figure of the Lord's servant. And someone that, who's sent by God to rescue his people, to rule over his people. But this person exceeds the people's expectations of deliverance. Uh, he would bring justice to the nations and not just to Israel. He has promised to deliver us not only from a foreign power, but from the wrath of God himself. He would bring spiritual freedom as well as liberation from oppression. And because we have the luxury of looking at these poems, these songs, from the perspective of the New Testament, we know who this person is. It's Jesus. Jesus is that servant of the Lord. So when we look at these different poems, we actually get to know Jesus better. And we can see how the prophecies and fulfillments come together, and it helps us know him better and follow him better and love him better. We can consider all his, who he is, his achievements, his promises, all that helps us follow him better. So second sermon songs, Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. That's the first part of it, and we'll look at the rest of it next week. But let me read Isaiah 49, 1 through 6 to you. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord." And my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is God's word. Now when I read it, I was struck with this contrast between the public proclamation of the servant's message and the hiddenness of his person. There is the, the public revelation, a very forceful public declaration, but there is also this hiddenness and concealment of who he is. So for example, look at how our song begins. This is Jesus the servant speaking. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. He's saying, I, I want a worldwide hearing of my message. That's what Jesus is saying. The coastlands or the islands is as far as an Israelite could think. People from afar, anybody who's anywhere needs to hear this message. 
But then look at verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Now surely the sharp sword and the polished arrow are metaphors for the message of the servant, for his word, for the gospel. And yet the Lord hid him in the shadow of his hand and put him in his quiver. So in other words, to to understand Jesus, we must listen to his teaching. We must hear his message because the mystery of his person is revealed in the preaching of the gospel. And faith in this message and what we hear from him brings us into relationship with who he is, with his person. Now, Jesus did many things during his earthly life, right? I mean, we have records of all sorts of things he did, and John tells us he did all a bunch of other stuff that, that he didn't record. But he healed people, he fed people, he counseled people, all these things that he did. But the Gospels are clear that his main activity was preaching. His main thing that he did was preaching and teaching, communicating his message, the message of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And those who embraced this message, they became his disciples. Based on the words that he said and their faith in those words, they followed him. While many who saw his miracles, who were healed or fed by him, who expected him to take the throne in Jerusalem, many of those people ultimately misunderstood and rejected him. They knew him in a way. They were around him. But because they didn't embrace his words and his message, they, he kind of remained this mysterious or misunderstood figure to them. So this morning, I'd like to explore three things that are concealed in the person of Jesus Christ, especially for someone who's reading Isaiah, who's, who's trying to figure it out without the luxury of having heard the gospel preached by Jesus and his apostles. So three things that are concealed in the person, and then we'll look at three things that are revealed in the gospel of Jesus. So three things that are concealed in him, and then explanations of these things in the gospel of Jesus. So what's concealed in the person? Well, number one, divinity is concealed in his humanity. His divinity is concealed in his humanity. The servant was called by the Lord from the womb, Isaiah says. From the body of his mother, he was named. He was given a human name. He was birthed by a woman. And yet, the servant is not a mere human being. He would become a light for the nations. That's not human language. It's too, too, too big. The job is too big for a human person. John tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, the divine person, became human and lived among us. Now listen to how Charles Wesley puts it in his famous hymn. Christ, the highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. That's his divinity. Late in time, behold him come, 
offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And as we read Isaiah during the season of Lent, I hope that you're reading through the book of Isaiah this Lent. Our imagination is captured by this person of the servant. It accumulates as you read the book, and, and you will, as you progress, you will see this, this figure of this divine deliverer becoming more and more clear, and his, his personhood and his, his mission is expanded, always exceeding our expectations. He is a deliverer, but his deliverance is, is more comprehensive than anyone could ever dream. He's a king, but he's unlike any king who came before him. There, there's a wonderful mystery about the person of the Messiah. Something is veiled, something is hidden, something is being revealed over time. And really not until the New Testament that we finally confirm that he is both God and man. He's both. Two natures in one person veiled in flesh, incarnate deity. But as you read Isaiah, you're just seeing hints. Something is concealed. Something is hidden. The Lord is careful to reveal who He is, both God and man. Second thing that is concealed is the fate of Israel is concealed in His life. The fate, the destiny of Israel is concealed in His life. Now, this may be confusing, so let's unravel it together. Look at verse 3. The Lord says, the Father speaking to the Son, says, you are my servant, Israel. He calls him Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, some people reading Isaiah say, well, this whole servant thing is about Israel. All the passages about the servant of the Lord actually refer to the people of the Lord, to Israel, the collective people of God. But that doesn't work in this song and really in any other song. Look at verse 5. The Lord's mission for the servant, whom he just called Israel, is to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, to the Lord. And then verse 6. The servant's job is to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So the servant is Israel, but he is sent to save and restore Israel. Now, what's, what's going on here? Why is the Lord referring to Jesus as Israel? And at the same time, it's very clear he's not talking to the collective people, to the nation of Israel. Jesus Christ comes as the new representative of God's people. Israel as a covenant people collectively failed. Now Isaiah has witnessed their rejection of God and he predicted their loss of land, destruction of the temple, exile into Babylon. Isaiah is talking to Israel, the collective Israel, and he's telling them that they have failed their obligations before God. So now the Lord's servant, whom God calls Israel, comes as a new Jacob, 
as a new Israel in whom the people of God would finally realize their covenant destiny. Their fate is concealed in the person and the life of the servant of Jesus. Now let me give you some examples of how it plays out throughout the scriptures. When Jesus came, he retraced the steps of Israel, as it were. Now look at Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. This is the story about Joseph and Mary running away from Herod. An angel appears to Joseph and tells him to take Mary and the baby, baby Jesus, to Egypt because King Herod is looking to kill Jesus. And he ends up killing a lot of babies in his effort to eliminate this potential rival to his throne. So an angel comes and tells Joseph, you need to go to Egypt. So Joseph takes his family to Egypt, stays there until the death of Herod. And then Matthew says, this is what's really interesting. Matthew says in verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now he's obviously referring to Jesus who had just gone to Egypt and then returned from Egypt. Quoting Hosea 11.1. 1. But Hosea is not talking about Jesus. Hosea is talking about Israel being rescued by God from slavery in Egypt. God calling his son, the collective nation of Israel, he's calling them out of Egypt into the land of promise because he loves them. Now how is it fulfilled in Joseph's family's flight to Egypt? Well, Jesus came to retrace the steps of Israel. He assumed the role of God's covenant people in order to fulfill all covenant obligations and restore them back to the Lord. So where Israel collectively failed, Jesus succeeded on their behalf. Now, if you read the Gospels carefully, you will see lots of connections that are there specifically to show us that Jesus retraced the steps of Israel. All those redemptive events that God performed for Israel, for his people, as he led them, as he saved them, Jesus actually does and hints at and alludes to and points to so we can see him as the new Israel. The new Jacob, who came to fulfill the destiny of God's people, fulfill God's promises to them. Now, why did Jesus go into the wilderness for 40 days and he was tempted there? Was it not to retrace the steps of Israel who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? Why did Jesus get baptized in the Jordan? Was it not to cross into the promised land? Why did Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount? Why the Mount important here? Was it not a reenactment of the giving of the law that only Jesus could keep perfectly? Why did the Son of Man have no place to lay his head? Was it not because he went into exile like Israel went to Babylon? Why did Jesus prophesy the destruction of the temple and then the rebuilding of the temple in three days referring to his resurrection? Was it not to represent Israel? 
Jesus Christ took the fate, the destiny of Israel into himself as he succeeded Ultimately, so did God's people in him. He became our representative, our new leader. If you don't understand this idea, it's very hard to understand how redemption works. This is one of the key ideas that he comes as our representative, as our head, someone who undoes what we had done and does things well and pleases God on our behalf. Jacob is brought back and Israel is gathered in the person of the servant, concealed in him. And that is why in the New Testament, one of the most commonly used phrases is in Christ. In Christ. We are hid in him. We are concealed and so his fate becomes ours. Now thirdly, Glory is concealed in his failure. Glory is concealed in the failure of the servant. Now look at verses 3 and 4. And he said to me, so God speaking to the servant, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. The promise of glory. But I said, this is the servant speaking, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. The Lord promises to be glorified in his servant, but the servant's life seems like an utter failure. What did Jesus really accomplish in his earthly life? I mean, did he not labor in vain? He died rejected, abandoned by all, including his closest friends. And yet somehow it was right, and it was used by God for his glory. Do you see the mystery? you see the hiddenness here? Now listen to how James Allen Francis described Jesus in his 1926 sermon, which was reprinted in a very popular booklet at one time called One Solitary Life. Here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with the world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. These are the facts of his human life. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race. 
and the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever were built and all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. That's all concealed in him. But now what is revealed? All these things hidden in the person of Jesus, as Isaiah describes him, have been now revealed in the gospel of Jesus. He explained it to us. He has taught us about these things. And he calls us to abide in his words so we can know him, know his person. By listening to his message, we discover who he is, which is why he came to preach. So what are the three things that are revealed in the gospel? First, the presence of God is revealed in his gospel. The presence of God is revealed in his gospel. Just as his divinity is concealed in his humanity, so is God's nature revealed in Jesus as explained to us in the gospel. Now, the gospel says that Jesus is both God and man, that he became human so he can restore God to us. The reason Jesus came is so he could restore God, his presence, his love, his relationship, his promises to us. So became, he became like us so we can get God. Now, what is the greatest benefit of believing the message of Jesus. Let's say you hear me now. Let's say you're not a Christian and you say, I want to believe. Why do you want to believe? What is the greatest benefit? Is it being relieved of guilt? I no longer need to feel guilty for my sin. That's a great benefit. Is it recovering a moral compass? I finally know what's right and what's wrong. I know how to live. I know how to treat others. That's a great benefit. Is it experiencing inner peace? Knowing that even in the midst of crisis, you have someone that is powerful, who loves you, who will never leave you, nor forsake you. That's a great benefit. Is it not going to hell? That is a great benefit. Knowing that I will not be judged by God himself for my sins and I deserve his punishment. I deserve to infinitely hurt for my sin and I won't do that because God loves me in Christ. That's a great benefit. But it's not the greatest benefit. The greatest benefit of the gospel is God himself. That is the greatest promise. That is the greatest value. That is the greatest thing you get by believing the gospel of Jesus. You get God himself. God is offering himself to you through Jesus. That's why Jesus came. So that if you don't have Jesus, you don't have God. If you don't believe the gospel, you don't have God. But if you hear Jesus calling you, calling you to follow him, to believe in him, and you respond, you will live in the love and presence of God now and into eternity. 
Now listen to John. I read a little bit of that passage, John 1.14. So let me read the rest of the verse 14, verse 14 and then jump to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the hiddenness. Divinity is hidden in his humanity. is concealed. And he comes to us as, a, as, a, as God, but also as man. And then John says, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus came and he brought God to us. He restored God to us. So now it's right to say that if I believe in the gospel, I know God. It is right to say that if I believe in the gospel, I have God. It is right to say that if I believe in the gospel, God is on my side. Not because of me, because I deserve it but because I have sided with Jesus, his servant, who came to bring God to us. So here's the first challenge. Do you know God? Do you know God or have you lost focus of the greatest purpose of the gospel? The greatest purpose is the relationship with him. And have you gotten distracted and prioritized other things, important things, good things, but not as important as God himself. Do you know God? Now, secondly, the second thing that's revealed in the gospel is the people of God. The people of God are revealed in the gospel. Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, verses 4 and following, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Again, he's talking about something that had been concealed, something that had been hidden in Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So what's this mystery in Christ? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery that was concealed in the person of Jesus and is now revealed in the gospel is that anyone who believes the gospel can be united with Christ and can become part of God's people. Who are the people of God? All who believe the gospel, all who follow Christ are God's people. Now look at verse 6. The Lord says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. God is saying it's not enough. It's, it, it's too simple almost for the servant just to redeem and bring Israel, the ethnic national Israel, back to God. And then he says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, to the islands and the coastlands and people that are far. Jesus is the light of the world. And wherever his gospel is proclaimed, there are God's people. And this light is spreading and more and more of the world 
is illuminated by the gospel, bringing hope to millions. Now, did you know that the largest identifiable group, united group of people in the world is the people of Jesus? There's nobody more numerous than the people of Jesus in the world today. There are more people who identify as followers of Jesus than any other association of people. The church is bigger than any empire. It's bigger than any movement. It's bigger than any industry. And it keeps growing because the light of Christ shines. And wherever it touches people, wherever it shines, there are people who are responding to that call. And they're meeting God through the gospel. And they're being changed through the gospel. Are you part of his people? Do you believe the gospel? Has that light shone on you? And you've been brought in into this community of Gentiles and Jews through the centuries. All of God's people from generation to generation that have seen his faithfulness some that had waited for the servant to come, and many who now look back and say, he has come, and his light shines in the world. And finally, the third thing that is revealed in the gospel is the power to save, the power to save. Now look at Romans 1, 16 through 17. Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is the gospel? The gospel is the proclamation, it's a declaration, it's a message, it's an announcement that the servant, this person Jesus, came to live and die in our place so that we can have new life with God. And the way he did it, the way this God-man did it, seemed mysterious and hidden and concealed, but through the preaching and explanation of the gospel, we understand what he did. What the world considers failure, this life wasted, life that was ended on a cross in a scandalous, embarrassing judgment. That failure, as the world sees it, was actually sacrifice. It was actually sacrifice for our people because we deserve that kind of death. We deserve that kind of embarrassing, humiliating death. But he, the new Israel, came in our place, took our place before the judgment of God and was judged for us. And his sacrifice has been accepted by God on our behalf. The recompense is with his God. His right is with his God. And so we are now made right through what he did for us. What the world sees as obscurity, this life that was lived in some backwater town so many years ago that nobody should take notice of, actually is humility. 
is actually Jesus coming into our lives. Because that's our lives. We all live obscure lives. Going to work and raising children and getting together with friends and balancing our budgets. That's our lives. And Jesus lived that. Lived it in our place, retracing our steps with every step, fixing every mistake. So that as our representative, he can go before God and he can say, look, I have fixed it. Here's my life instead of theirs. My life pleasing to you, fulfilling every obligation, meeting every standard, all the laws were fulfilled. And Jesus says, Father, take this as their resume. Take it as their record so they could be accepted by you. What the world sees as weakness, somebody who just didn't step up and didn't stood up to, to the forces against him and didn't win the fight, is actually service to us because he came as the Lord's servant and our servant who in his weakness gave up his rights so he could serve us. And that great passage we looked at two weeks ago where there's the prediction that at this great banquet, when we gather with God's people, Jews and Gentiles ready to feast in God's kingdom, he will serve us. He will wait on us. Because he's okay to be meek. He's okay to be weak in front of us. Because that delivers us. That brings us to God. Now this is the message. This is the the gospel that shines the light on our sin. It shows us how much we failed. It shows us that we are not, we don't belong in his kingdom. We don't belong with God. And yet it also offers redemption by grace through the servant, through Jesus. Let me give you a final illustration that will come to the table. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, he combines that idea of hiddenness and mystery, something that is concealed to us, with this idea of of a great surprise in revelation of what it actually is. You remember his kingdom parables where he says, a man found a treasure in a field. And he went home and he sold everything he had so he can get the field, so he can get the treasure. Something that was concealed, was hidden away, was surprisingly revealed to him. He just stumbled upon it and he sold everything he had so he can get the treasure. And he did not regret his sacrifice. Because what he got, even though he didn't know it even existed, he now sees as the most precious thing in his life. The same with the merchant who, was, who found this pearl of great price. This wonderful pearl that he had to sell everything to get it. And he did not regret his sacrifice either. It was a rational choice. I will give up everything I have to get this treasure. That's the kingdom. Concealed in the person of Christ until the gospel is proclaimed to you and until the Holy Spirit speaks to you and it clicks in your heart and you say, this is the greatest treasure. There's nothing better than God. There's nothing more important than Him. And He is offered to me through this servant, through His death and resurrection, ready to be apprehended by faith, 
by faith alone, by the simple trust of saying, this is true. You did do this for me. And when we grab it, we grab God. By grace. Now what is required for someone to get God? What is required for someone to believe in the gospel, really to believe? It requires abandoning everything else. But it is not a requirement in terms of, I have to do this to get this. It's a natural reaction of a heart that has been changed by the gospel already. The light is already shown into your heart. And you already see what you're getting. So you are not going to hold on to anything else, but you will get that. That's what the gospel does to a person. The surprise of it is so stark. It's so brilliant in your mind that you're saying, I can't, I can't live without it. What do I have to give up? I'll give up everything so I can get that. And when you get it, there's another surprise. And that surprise is that with it, you get everything else. Because God doesn't withhold anything from his children. Whatever he offers to you, him and everything else is what you need. So have you been surprised by his grace? And have you, have you abandoned everything to get this gift that's offered to you because of the work of the servant 